Hello, everyone. How are you doing? Welcome to another episode on Living on the Edge of Chaos podcast. I am here today is a ding dong delight. I, I think I don't know that the podcast has ever had uh, this much brain power all harnessed in in one show. I, we've got three guests on the show today, three phenomenal people uh, that has really challenged my thinking and um, enhanced some of my, my my practices and things that I've been kind of toiling around with and and kind of some some recent uh, connections um, in terms of these three phenomenal people. And that's part of the the learning journey being a lifelong learner is there's so many people doing great things and just when you think you you've read seen it all um you come across other people doing phenomenal work and this is definitely the case here and so i have on the show today aaron starkey amanda clark and sarah levin they are co-authors of implementing project-based learning in early childhood overcoming misconceptions and reaching success and i will have them all introduce themselves and talk a little bit here about how they all came together, because that's something that I actually don't know about that I'm actually intrigued about, and then getting into to some of their work. And, and before we do that, I think one of the things that I want to put in here are, are, are two caveats. Uh, number one, early childhood PBL is not an area in which I have a lot of experience. And so coming across this work was very uh, important for my own learning as I'm trying to figure out how to scale these types of opportunities for students of all ages. I've I taught middle school. I've been doing some work in, with upper primary grades. I do some stuff in high school, but really getting down with with younger kids is something that I need to grow um, and, and be able to work with them. And their book has been really phenomenal. The other caveat that I think comes with this, and this is one of my ahas is just my learning journey that I've been reflecting at the time of this recording, and it's almost the, the end of 2022, which is crazy, is had I not met these people uh, prior to finding their book, I probably would not have read this book, to be honest, because I don't consider myself early childhood. And what I have found out reading this book is that the, the information in there is so universal. And I've already been sharing, I've been texting and making screenshots and all these types of things to educators that I work with at much older levels. And I think this has been an aha for me to continue to push outside my own comfort zones of what I typically read or what I think I need to be reading and exploring and learning uh, because there's other areas and domains like early childhood that um, has just really, really empowered my learning and maybe recalibrate that I also need to push where I, I dabble and find information. So that was way, I just word vomited way too long there, but I'm just so excited uh, to have this conversation. So let's get into introductions because people are not listening to this podcast to hear me. They are here to hear you three phenomenal people. So let's start with introductions here and I will kick it off. I'm sure you guys have a, a plan of action knowing you and uh, who are you? What do you do? What do you got going on? Yeah, thanks, Aaron, for having us on this podcast. This is Amanda Clark, and I am coming to you from Des Moines, Iowa, and thrilled to hear about all of the great work you are doing in our state. So keep it up. And those of you that are listening that are also 
um, in Iowa. It's great to connect with you. Uh, just my backstory is I've spent 16 years in Des Moines Public Schools at a project-based learning elementary as both the classroom teacher and the instructional coach. Uh, that led me to write a dissertation about project-based learning in secondary. And that led me to Central College in Pella, Iowa, where I was a professor for five years uh, teaching pre-service teachers about a lot of different topics, but any chance I could weave in uh, topics related to inquiry specifically and project-based learning, uh, Project Lead the Way, I took advantage of that in my science methods course. So I am currently an educational consultant for a national organization called PBL Works working to bring project-based learning to educators across the country. Uh, and something exciting that I'm working on outside of our early childhood project-based learning uh, group is I have partnered with some folks at Drexel University in Philadelphia for a research study uh, that looks to include sustainable development goals in a project design. Uh, so we have conducted a uh, cohort one and now cohort two is going to launch in the spring and I'm happy to share those details uh, with all of you listeners and Aaron if you're interested in a free online course that merges sustainable development goals from the United Nations with project based learning in hopes of bringing um, awareness to altruism in children and eventually into high school when we roll out our next cohort. So yes. I'm excited to be here. Yes, absolutely. Sign me up for that because that's funny. That uh, well, not funny, but it's it's awesome to hear that because one of the ways in which I work with educators is they're like, how do I start to figure out what this looks like? Is I I lead them to the sustainable development goals. Going, we don't have to engineer problems. There's plenty. Let's look at what's happening and let's start to see how the world is doing this work interdisciplinary um, on a day by day basis. And why are we not doing that in the classroom? So I would yes, yes, woohoo for that. Wonderful. Yeah, thank you. And I will toss it to one of my other colleagues for their introduction and a little bio so you can hear from all three of us. Awesome. Thanks, Amanda. This is Erin Starkey. And originally, I am from Texas. We are in the San Antonio area, and I've spent time teaching in the classroom all from Austin, Texas, all the way up to Wichita Falls, which is almost Oklahoma, but not quite. And then uh, my husband's job brought us down to San Antonio, where I transitioned into more of the full-time coaching and consultancy roles. And so I'm also PBL Works National Faculty. I've taught third grade, fifth grade. I've been the K-12 instructional coach and technologist for my last district, and I'm really excited to get to share more about our work today and really think through what this looks like across the board. So thank you for having us. I think the work we're doing at ECPBL is really my exciting thing. Things really keep growing, and it's just amazing. Every time I turn around, Sarah's like, oh my goodness, here's another thing we're doing. So that's my exciting thing right now outside of that. That's awesome. Yeah, keep the buzz going. That's uh, what gets you out of bed on each day to know that this work is uh it's moving and grooving which sometimes can can feel a little stagnant it's like why aren't more people seeing this and so i'm so excited to hear that there's there, there's lots of energy around this work and then last but not least we have sarah so sarah who are you what do you got going on and all that good stuff here 
Hi, uh, I'm Sarah Lev. Thank you so much for having us today. Uh, I live in Los Angeles, California. Um, I my background is as a as a teacher and early childhood educator. So I've taught um, TK, which is transitional kindergarten here in California, um, which is four and five year olds, um, all the way through second grade for the last 17 years. So 17 years. And then this is my first year I transitioned out of the classroom. So that is my exciting thing. <laughs> and it's a little sad too, yeah, but, um, yeah. but it's been a really exciting shift for me. Um, uh, getting the chance to do this work more full time. So this work, meaning um, supporting educators in project based learning, um, but also my my school where I most recently taught uh, well, one exciting thing that is there's a big shift happening in the state of California right now around universal pre K, or what used to be called TK. And now we're going to do um, basically uh, universal preschool for four-year-olds. And so one of the exciting things I'm working on is bringing our work. So early childhood PBL into the space of TK educators um, or universal pre-K, because I think it's a really exciting time where early childhood educators are looking for deeper work, um, new approaches to bring, because they're going to be new in elementary schools in California. So I'm supporting my school. And then what's what's really a, a lot of energy in our own work, and we can talk more about this, is like bringing that work into um, other California counties and districts. That's been really exciting. And the other thing that's exciting for me is, you know, working in a number of different capacities. I'm very passionate about social emotional learning. Um, I practice yoga and mindfulness, um, restorative justice. And this year I'm getting to work with organizations nationally and internationally that do all that great work. So all in service of really bringing more joy um, more meaning to students' learning experiences and teachers' learning experiences. So that's that's what's going on for me right now. Yeah, I love that. So you guys all have a a common thread. Obviously, your just your your passion and what you do for education comes right out through your introduction. But yet, you also each have your own kind of individual flair in terms of the things that you're doing. And so, um, I, I really want to get into the content, but I am curious just because of location base. Like I sit there and. I know, Amanda, when I first came across you, I'm like, how in the world have I been in Iowa this long and our paths have not crossed, you know? And then, you know, we've got California and we've got Texas. So just because it's my own personal uh, curiosity, how did you three merge, um, come together, collaborate, connect? Because I think this too, I don't know what the answer is, but I'm speculating this is one of the things that I think is... It seems like everybody's doing it, but they're not in terms of building these connections and networks and, and and places like outside of your own, I always call it a local filter bubble. I don't mean that in a bad way, but like, how do we expand? And here you guys are like living proof of, you know, you're not all just living the same, uh, you know, cul-de-sac, you know, uh, going out for coffee and yoga in the morning, talking about early childhood PBL. Maybe you are, I don't know that, but uh, you know, how did you come together? Because I, I think that that really sets the stage for, I mean, probably a lot of the work that you guys have come together on, not just this book, but workshops and everything else. I wish we could go to coffee and yoga more. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure Amanda wants to do yoga with me <laughs> or drink coffee, <laughs> but I, anyway, um, 
yeah, you've described me perfectly. Um, but um, so I, I neglected to say this also in my introduction. I'm also a national faculty with PBL Works. Um, I'm part-time, not full-time, but um, I, I joined the faculty in 2017. And um, Amanda was also in my cohort. Aaron was already there and we we met. And what's so interesting about how we got connected initially was um, we didn't really all know each other. I mean, I met Amanda briefly. You know, PBL Works is a national faculty. So we all, you know, live all around the country. We come together, you know, once or twice a year. Maybe we might see each other in workshops that we that we facilitate. But um, that this particular year, early on in my uh, time at, uh, as a national faculty, um, we had a summit, which was a um, the coming together where we all get together and we do wonderful, you know, workshops and sessions and professional development for us. And um, our national faculty that that year, the theme was kind of like uh, underrepresented or you know lesser known, discussed PBL places, right? Like where should we focus our attention on places that maybe, maybe um, we hadn't been before. And our national faculty um, manager came, you know, first of all, there had not been an early childhood um, national faculty member, maybe one or two. Um, but certainly when I came in, I noticed uh, most of the national faculty weren't even elementary. Most of them had backgrounds in middle and high school. And, you know, I think that, you know, to her credit, our, our manager noticed that, that, um, that missing piece. And around that summit, she, she brought all three of us together and she said, you know, I'm thinking about what do you think about doing a session for our national faculty on that K through two, you know, area of PDL for our national faculty to learn more, because that is an area that had just been missing. And so um, we met and we we had never met. And I'm like sitting here on Zoom thinking, gosh, I think we were on um, maybe Skype or a Google chat. But I remember like this was a new thing for me anyway. And we met for the first time and we started to plan this workshop and we called the workshop or the session, the K through two conundrum. Mm. And in that session, so this is back in 2018, we planned it for the summit um, to to offer that to any national faculty who were curious about how to support better support early childhood educators who were in their workshops, in their PBL workshops, because they noticed that that was something that we hadn't devoted a lot of time to. So so that's how we came together. That's how we met. Um, and then in terms of you know the book, it, it was just very fortunate um, that. Um, you know, through our one of our uh, fellow uh, colleagues at PBL Works, he 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 was approached about, hey, there's some interest in PBL. How do you do it with younger kids? Do you know anybody who could write that book? And he um, gave them my name, and I was like, you know, in the classroom full time, and I was thinking, I don't know how to write a book. <laughs> Can I write a book? What do I have to say? You know, and I I threw I bounced around a number of ideas, and then I came back to that workshop session that K through two conundrum, which we framed around misconceptions. We actually asked national faculty, what are the things you hear from early childhood teachers in your workshops when you go and they kind of sit there in the back of the room with their arms folded and are like, well, yeah, oh yeah, well, how do you do this? I teach kindergarten, how do you do that? How do you, and we asked them for what they heard. What are the things that they heard? And that's what our workshop was on. And that became the idea for the book. Hey, what if we frame this book around all those literal sentences we heard 
um, that were preventing early childhood teachers from trying PBL. And, uh, and hey, hey, Rutledge liked the idea. And then we wrote the book. It was so easy. No, just yeah. kidding. Yeah. Easy peasy, right? Yeah. <laughs> easy peasy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, and I love that. And I, you know, I think the segue into the, to the book, um, thank you for sharing that because now, now I know uh, my curiosity has been uh, resolved there in that capacity, but not in terms of all the work. That's what I love so much about the work uh, of your book. I've, I've gone through and I read the paperback and then my process, I always go back then through the Kindle and I'll go through and make sure I have my highlights. And then I nerdy sort things later. And I find myself like scrolling through my Kindle notes, like, geez, I should have just highlighted the whole book, you know, because there's so many things in there. But what I like best about the book itself, one that it stretched my own learning, um, but the idea how you tackle misconceptions in a way that is positive and in a way that isn't insulting to many people who have those reservations about why they think it can't work or why they think they can't do it. And I think there's just a lot of confidence, a lack of awareness. They haven't seen it. And there's a lot of things that you guys go into. Uh, but I really like the way it's framed because it goes after my wife's an eighth grade algebra teacher. And we always joke. Well, it's not really a joke. It started out as a joke, but it's not a joke anymore that in education, there's there, there's two worlds. There's theory land and reality. And, you know, anyone can write a book and say, this is how it'll work in a classroom. And then there's the reality of, okay, then come do it with 30, 38th graders, you know, on the week before winter break and show me how this works. Like your book is not that. Your book is practical. It's got research, which I think speaks to admin and people who maybe want to try to poke holes into this type of work, especially I think after COVID where unfortunately, and I'm, I'm generalizing, I think a lot of people are panicking, trying to quote unquote, catch up. And they're trying to schedule every single minute to be something of importance all the time, not realizing that's actually like exactly what maybe what we don't need. Um, and so as, as we get into that, we don't have time to break all the misconceptions down. And I know that there's a lot of these that we could go into really great detail. The, my answer to anybody would be just read the darn book because you do a phenomenal job of breaking it down and giving the practical examples from your classroom and the research that goes with it and so many resources in the appendix and, and those types of things. But what are some of your, I don't call them your favorite misconceptions or the ones that you really want to speak of to the audience today listening um, as a catalyst for them to understand what we mean by these misconceptions? Because there's so many of them that I did. Some of them I've heard before in my own work, but I had to be like reminded of like, this is, this is the headspace of where they're coming at. And as opposed to me as a supporter getting frustrated, like, okay, I have to understand where they're at so I can help them understand that it's, it's not that bad, or it's just, let's, let, let's reshift our thinking a little bit. Um, and so if we dive into there and, and Aaron, we'll start off with you. I'll put you in the hot seat here first in this, I mean, I know there's a lot, but you know, as, as you guys were crafting this book and the work that you do, what's one of those big misconceptions that, you know, really stand out to you um, that, that you want to address here um, on the show today? Absolutely. Thanks, Aaron. The one that stood out, we had a really hard time also narrowing this down, like how do we choose? But the one I want to start with today is actually around the idea of literacy. So the misconception for our book is I, my students can't read or write yet. How can they do projects? Yeah, And yeah. we can't tell you how many times we've heard that in our own workshops and especially the 
again, after we've been home learning and what that transition looks like now. And our answer is literacy may be too narrow. Maybe our way of framing literacy has only been reading and writing. And what if literacy is reading and writing, absolutely, and speaking and listening? What if we incorporate all four of those skills and we look for ways for students to authentically make meaning, for them to connect to a study of language, how you converse, how you take turns, what does it look like to have discourse together, all through inquiry. So what, is it, what does that look like if we break that, that idea of literacy down and expand our ideas of it, of literacy and what that can mean? And so that's really where we started from was, wow, wait a minute, if we look at what literacy can be, then we can provide lots of opportunities for our early learners to engage in meaningful opportunities. Yes, we've got our literacy blocks, right? We are we are of the, we have 120 minutes for English language arts. We have 90 for math. We have 45 for science and 45 for social studies. And that is our day, right? And we squeeze into recesses in about 30 minutes for lunch. <laughs> and so like, that's our current reality. And we thought, wait a minute, you you should be looking for opportunities for our students to constantly be questioning and talking about their questions together. If you can throw in some writing, great. If you can have them talk in pairs, talk in small groups, that's literacy, right? Those are all opportunities. Mm -hmm. And so I want to make sure that we also talk about how children are emergent readers and writers and they're going to learn these skills through the project. So it's not that we dismiss the blocks or we only teach in isolation. We know about the science of reading here. We get it. Yes, you've got to teach phonics. We know that that's a thing. We're not saying don't do that. We're saying that it's in addition to those literacy blocks. What if you take the concepts that you're working with and you pull those into the project? What if you're helping them make those meaningful connections? How powerful that can be. And specifically thinking about some concrete structures that teachers can utilize through a project, we talk about discussions. So I mentioned those a little bit earlier, the partner discussions, the small group discussions, the opportunities in whole groups, thinking about protocols and things that they can go through the project as well. We talk about how important a print rich environment is, especially for mm -hmm. emergent readers and writers. So incorporating project walls, we love bulletin boards right? We love them. And what if we also made them interactive? What if these were opportunities for students to help us? They put the print up there. Their names are up on the board. Their work is up on the project wall. They are writing the questions or we're using the question stems and they're putting their best writing there with us, right? And so we're constantly interacting with that print rich environment. So really thinking about how project walls can play a part, how anchor charts and interactive writing, the things we're already doing, have a part to play in this work. Thinking about how expert visits and field work, the interviews that students can practice and create questions for, and then do with experts, the class books that they're creating. Y'all, these are things that we're doing. We're making class books, right? So how can we use those in service of literacy in the project? So everything starts to work together, right? 
thinking about the read-alouds that we're doing. What if we tailored our read-alouds and thereby <clears throat> our classroom libraries to be project around the project topics or content, right? We used to, we knew it was project time when I would roll the cart down and the librarian would go, oh, yep, Starkey's in project <laughs> because the kids would go through the shelves and we would pull all the books, check them out for our project. And then they could go grab those during choice times, during independent reading times, during small group read alouds, like anything, they would put them in their RTI guided reading book buckets. Like they could, we could do what we already needed to do. And now we're using it on purpose. We're being intentional about why we're doing it and what structures we're using, right? So read alouds play a huge part. I mentioned choice time, the opportunities for imaginative play, having conversations about the work that they're doing and us watching what they're doing, listening to those conversations and being able to weave those in. And then of course, we've got written expression, right? Opportunities for them to reflect, opportunities for them to share what they're learning. In addition to, yes, doing a public product, but we want that along the way so that if we hear misconceptions or we see them, then we know what well, we're going to do a mini lesson or we're going to structure learning around those misconceptions that we're hearing. So that's really what we drilled down into were these ideas of the things that we already do and they're already literacy rich. How can we use those in service of the project work that students are engaging in? Yeah, I love that so much. And there's there's two words that I, I feel that I share a lot on this podcast. And I think they they fit with everything you just shared. And the two words are perception and permission. And this idea of perception for the educator, and or maybe it's a building admin, depending on how the, the building structure and 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 maybe where some of the potential barriers might be into making this stuff happen is the perception that you can do all those things, say like in a block, right? Whether that's our literacy block or a math block, the way that you talked about infusing, like bring the books in that are about the project and, and the speaking and the right, like all that fit, like you're not, you're not going against the expectations of, of what we know works for kids and what the expectations of, of what teachers are being asked to do in a school day. And I think that's really, really important because I think so often it feels if you haven't done it, that you're like violating rules, like that you're not actually doing what you like, You've been told you have the 120 minute block. We have the same exact thing in Iowa, right? So you got a 120 minute block, but like, but to do those things, well, then I, I'm not using my block time properly. Well, yes, you actually are. And actually you're, you're going even deeper. We always talk about the standards are like the non-negotiable, they're the floor. And we're using projects and inquiry to go like even be even further beyond in the learning, the deeper learning thinking with those kids. And so there's that. And then there's permission. And I think that's like permission for the educator to give themselves to do this. And so like my follow-up question to all those things, because I'm just, as you were talking, I'm like, yes, yes, yes. That's exactly what it should be. Like it still doesn't happen as much as I, I, I think it should be happening, to be honest. Like, how do we what have you found in your workshops and the work that you do, whether where you are, you guys get to go out and travel and see different things and you're hearing these voices. How do you grapple with that? How do you, I mean, we can't just magically change people's minds 
you know, in an instant, but we can plant some, th some, some seeds to help them start to rethink differently. So like, as you're talking, I doubt any educator or admin or anybody in education would argue with anything you just said, but yet at the time of this recording winter break, they're going to go back and those things won't always happen necessarily in every school. How do you process that? How do you, how do you challenge the, the mindset that that stuff is permissible. It is actually doing what the the block of time is designed to do. It is the research of knowing what works. How, how do you guys how do you guys grapple with that? Well, I actually think this is the perfect segue into what Sarah's going to talk about. And Sarah, I really worked hard, not to mention all, any of our layers. I worked really <laughs> hard to hold it in because that's how was, exactly what she's about to talk about. Totally. So I was thinking to the same thing. Now we're actually mind reading. No, because what you're asking is because because so much of the questions that teachers have are like, how do I do this? Okay, great, great idea. Uh, integrate literacy, make it more meaningful, use what I'm already doing. Well, how, how do I do it? And so I think the answer lies in integration, right? What does it mean to integrate content, right? All the stuff you have to teach, especially in early childhood where it's about foundational skills. So particularly in literacy teachers, and, and you mentioned, um, you know, after COVID, this kind of pressure that we have around um, scheduling every minute, right? Catching kids up for missed time. And it's so, um, it's, it's, it's even I would argue it's even more in many ways for teachers of younger children who came in, you know, what are teachers are saying two years, quote, I'm putting in quotes behind, right? Right, right. right. Um, in those foundational skills. So how do we do this? And so teachers are really hesitant to do project-based learning because they're like, well, wait, I got to focus on my foundational skills. So the point of integration. So when I talk to teachers about what does this actually look like? Let me, let me tell you how to do it. And I think when they get permission to integrate in the, the I'm going to tell you three ways that we recommend doing it, they, there's a sense of relief. So the first way is that you're intentionally integrating your, your um, knowledge and your skills, your standards into the project, right? So the misconception that we address is like, wait a minute, I can't do PBL. I got to teach my kids too many skills. And in order for them to be ready to do PBL, they're going to have to do the skills and forget it, right? So it's kind of, it's multi-layered in the sense of like, I don't have time. Um, also they can't do that deep kind of learning if they don't how, know how to count, right? So it's every, um, by the way, it's not just academic skills. It's the social emotional skills. A lot of times we hear teachers say, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll teach them how to collaborate and then they can do the project. We'll build community and then we'll do the project. And I'm saying to them, no, no, no. You actually build community through the project. You develop collaboration skills through the project. Don't wait, right? But the thing is they need to know how. How do I do it? So when you intentionally integrate, so we have come up with our own kind of approach to integration. Um, and it was funny, Aaron and I were talking about this the other day. We're like, oh yeah, like this is our own. Like when I say this in workshops, they're like, oh my God, I've never heard of that. I'm like, yeah, that's because we just made it up. <laughs> but like, <laughs> we we didn't make it up out of whole cloth. Like I was remembering like sitting on a couch and Aaron was like, well, wait, what do you do? Like, tell me what you do. And I'm like, well, it's kind of like three layers. First, you like, you always have to, you know, intentionally plan what you're going to integrate. Okay, cool. That's, we call that intentional integration. <laughs> but then there was these two other layers, 
that I felt like we were, you know, was happening in my classroom, which are, which give teachers a lot of freedom. So that second layer, we call it parallel integration. And why? Because what I was doing was, let's say my project had um, some nonfiction writing in it. Maybe the, the public product was the, cre the creation of a book. Well, yes, we were learning to, to do nonfiction writing in our project time, or I call it project work time. But also I'm running my nonfiction unit, right? So if I'm whatever curriculum I'm using, I'm doing those lessons in my standalone writing time, running parallel to the project. So like, let's say I'm doing measurement, right? We're measuring plants in a garden, but also I'm doing my Turk investigations, you know, or whatever measurement, whatever math curriculum at the same time. And usually when I say that to teachers, there's this sense of like, oh, oh, okay, I don't have to throw out my curriculum. Right. Oh, I don't have to throw out my math block. And there's this freedom that comes from this idea of that's integration too. Because, you know, during math, of course, we're going to do measuring our plants and we're going to do the project, but we're also going to do the lessons that come with the curriculum because that's great practice, right? Um, and those can be really great lessons. Or they, or teachers wonder like, wait, can I do my science curriculum in the project? Yeah, of course. Take those great lessons. Take those experiments, integrate them in or do them running parallel. So that's that second, um, you know, and that, that really um, helps teachers to see, I don't have to front load, right? So much of the misconception is around, I've got to front load the skill so they can measure in the project, so they can write nonfiction books. No, 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 just, just do it at the same time, right? Because the thing is kids get super engaged and they know the why. Right. We have a colleague and friend who says, um, you know, kids don't care about the what they care about the why. And when you get to shout out to Delena. Um, so when they get to that, why? And that's with literacy. That's with math. That's by the way, that's with social emotional. Right. They will be much more apt to to do it, to want to do it. And then the third sort of layer of integration that we we coined um, is spontaneous integration. And I think this also is very freeing, um, particularly for early childhood teachers who are probably doing this anyway. They want to follow kids' interests. They want to observe their play and their conversations. But we as educators need to be open to what emergence emerges spontaneously in a project. And we have to know our standards and learning goals so well so that when a kid gives us a little nugget, we go, oh my gosh, yes, that's amazing. Let's do that, right? And also that's going to cover our X standard, right? So we want the beauty of PBL in terms of integration is that um, those those spontaneous things might come up and we want to be able to bring them into the project um, and use them. And also, hey, why not cover some learning goals and some skills if we can? And we want to be able to say yes. So those are our three layers of integration. Um, copyright, Amanda Clark, Aaron Starkey, Sarah Lev. <laughs> 2022. Um, but anyway, <laughs> and, um, and, and, you know, why am I saying that? Because like I said, people are like, oh, that's so cool. I never heard of that, you know, <laughs> but that's what I was doing. That's what I was doing in my class because I, I, I knew that, that, that that's how to integrate in those meaningful ways. And at the same time, give kids, um, give teachers, like you said, that permission to keep those standalone blocks. Yeah, and I love that because I think sometimes the fear is like, right, we have to throw the baby out with the bathwater and everything I've been doing um, makes me feel as if 
the work I've been doing is now invalidated because I haven't been doing PBL. And now all of a sudden I've been a bad teacher for however many years. And that's not the case at all. Just like you said, there's probably a lot of educators that are doing a, a lot of those, at least in particular, those first two layers, you know, um, just maybe even naturally and organically, they don't even know that they're doing it. And maybe that kind of sounded like the case for you. Like when you had to like kind of verbalize it, right? Like tell me more about what you do because we don't always know what we do because it's just kind of like what we do, right? Like it's exactly. that, 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 that meta processing of like, oh, this is a really great trait. Like, I don't, like, why do you do that? I don't know. It's exactly. Doing. So I, and that I, parallel yeah. integration, like, especially like the beauty of PBL, right, is that it's really encouraging those authentic connections and giving kids agency. So, you know, when in school do we get to kids, give kids agency and ownership for their learning? And, and how amazing, you know, I just, my last project was a garden project and we read this book called, um, Planting a Rainbow. And, um, it was about, you know, every color of the uh, the, 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 you know, different colors and plants that grow in those colors. Right. And so I read the book and again, integration, right. That was just my read aloud time. Wasn't my project time. And one little girl in my class, you know, five-year-old Aubrey raised her hand and said, can we plant a rainbow garden? Cause we were already planting a garden. And I was like, what, what is, what's a rainbow garden? And she was like, you know, it's when every um, plant is in a row in our garden bed in every color in order. Mm. And so, so in that moment, I was able to say, oh my gosh, yes, let's use, let's do Aubrey's idea. And forever after she designed it, she taught, told kids what to paint. She told, decided where to put the plants. And that really impacted how our project went, even in terms of the research that kids were doing and the inquiry process, because all of a sudden it was like, oh, now we're going to study plants in every color of the rainbow. And so um, point is, when else do I get my kids to decide the direction of their learning? Um, and, and that, that so be, me being open to that spontaneous integration uh, was what allowed that. I could have absolutely said no. You know, and side note, I also tell teachers like, you don't have to say yes to everything. And a, a big misconception I think of, that, that teachers have is that PBL student driven right? And they're like, oh, I just have to follow what, wherever my kids go and follow their lead. And, you know, I tell, I tell, I like to tell teachers, like, it's not student driven. It's maybe it's student informed or it's mm -hmm. learner centered, but we, we you, you can't really let kids drive the project in a, in a, in a, in this, you know, context. Cause we do have things we have to teach and it's, it's going to be a runaway train, but another topic, but anyway, point is, yeah, those three layers are really helpful because I think they give permission. Um, and it's also very exciting for teachers in some ways. Um, and a lot of ownership and agency for kids. Yeah. I love that because I think that, that planning for the unknown and, and get, putting space into your, your structures for kids to have voice and choice. And I think there is that misconception that when we talk about that, that it's just, you know, kids can go off and go do whatever. And no, that's not the case. Like we do have a job to do, but that doesn't mean that we also remove their voices from the equation as well. Like we should be modeling this work. We should be modeling when things don't work on our end and when they have aha moments. And I know just in a project we recently finished up, um, having that space for kids to 
be passionate or excited about what it is they're learning. And I think back to what Aaron was saying, like sometimes that maybe they can't read and write, but all of a sudden they're really excited about whatever it is they're learning. And they want to be able to figure out how to express that. Not that those foundation skills just magically occur, but there's a, there's a different driver now uh, when those kids are like, no, I want to be able to express that. Like, I want to get that out there. You know, there's that intrinsic motivation that comes from that. And we had a, we had a, um, uh, a, a young young student and she long story short was creating this project for nasa and had we put the constraints on what we thought kids couldn't couldn't do um she never would have reached her her peak and she we had her coding in in um uh, in in python and having this thing do like voice speech pattern recognition and, and coding in like all the different word breakdowns, the vowels and things, so the device itself couldn't actually like speak it. And she's coding like the ways to do it for this thing to to talk in this micro bit. And I, we were just like, oh, how incredible is this? Like, just we just need to get out of her way. And it was aligning to everything we needed needed the project to do. And one of our ahas and our reflections educators were like, man, just think about if we had like a canned lesson and every kid got like this one type of learning, like she never would have had the space or the opportunity. Like she was doing stuff that they teach, you know, way beyond her grade level, because that's where she was. That's where she wanted to go. But it doesn't mean everybody has to be there. And so I love that because I think it, it you know, probably will segue a lot into to what, what Amanda's going to talk about here is when we allow the kids to explore their interest within the project, you know, constraints, constraints are good. You just can't have a, a wide open slate to do whatever, you know, that's what keeps the the excitement going. Well, what happens if we plant a rainbow garden? Well, I don't know. Okay. Well, how do we keep it alive? What are the colors? Maybe not everybody even knows the colors of the rainbow. Like, now these things are going and now we're rocking and rolling. And I think that's, what's so exciting. And I think once a teacher experiences it, they can't get enough of it, of that, that inquiry, just, like you get excited because you don't know where the kids are going to come up with next. And like you, you, that anticipation of like, oh my gosh, what are they going to do today in a good way? Not in a, oh my gosh, I don't want to go to school away. Uh, you know? And so I think there's that, that other kind of, you know, misconception there a little bit too of like, well, how do we, what does this look like? How do I keep it going? Because, you know, maybe I don't have that right now in my classroom, or maybe I, it's, it's, it's covered up through behaviors or covered up through, lack of whatever maybe is going on in the classroom. And so, you know, as we segue in, I want to, I mean, I want to make sure we get your voice in, you know, what, what, what's, what's a misconception you want to tackle and uncover, you know, something that's maybe bouncing off these ideas or, you know, you can go in your own direction too, with your own uh, genius there as well. Yeah, absolutely. As you were mentioning this idea of research uh, the way that we tackle the misconception of research is through that inquiry process. And I think the misconception as it's written, and I'll share that in just a moment, really resonates with adults, even non-teachers. And then they take it to the early learner level. And it's like, what? I have to do like what I did in college, what I did in grad school. I have to do all of this inquiry around one person, one topic, one pet, one animal. Um, that's research in our minds as adults, because we've been told to write a research paper. Um, and so then there's this misconception that PBL or project-based learning seems to involve a lot of research. And we would say, yes, it does, but I'll unpack that in a moment. And then the teacher piece is like, but my students are too young to research, which connects back to, well, they can't read and write. So how do they get in front of the computer, which again is an adult con construct. 
mm. uh, to research on their own. And so that really led us to this idea of what does it really mean to be a researcher? And I know often when we're not sure when we want to know something, don't know, we go to the dictionary. And it was fascinating to find out um, in our early days of, of generating this idea of research redefined is that the definitions of research don't say open Google, type in the topic, crank out some articles, and then regurgitate them, right? They don't. And so I'll share with you what the dictionary says and how we apply it with young children. Big idea, like you said, this is transparent across all grades. It's not because they're young and they can't read and write yet. It's because we as adults have to change that construct. Mm. So the first kind of Webster idea is a careful or diligent search. Again, not Google, but that's what we say, right? I'm going to do a Google search. Um, the one, the second definition really spoke to us, a studious inquiry or examination, especially investigation or experimentation aimed at the discovery and interpretation of facts. And I'll unpack that in just a moment. And then the third one is collecting information about a particular subject. Well, that's easy. We're already in a project topic with a driving question or a problem we're trying to solve. And we are going to search. We're going to investigate. But for us, we really glommed onto three words, inquiry, investigation, and experimentation. So when Sarah said, can I run my science unit? Absolutely. That's in probably some experimentation or some investigations. What do we want to find out? And are we going to search? Yeah, we're going to search for information. We're going to search for insights. And we're going to search for answers to our own questions. So we really believe in this idea of the inquiry cycle, where we generate some need-to-know questions. And then we ask the kids, how could we find out? Not our laundry list of questions, but maybe one or two that are related. How could we find the, the answers? And, and no four-year-old is going to say, well, that's not true. In this day and age, <laughs> they will say Google it. Um, but they have so many more ideas, right? Because they haven't had this construct that I just look through blogs, articles, watch a little YouTube. They're not wrong. We all have learning that we need a piece of that. Uh, but big picture to really discover something, that takes a, a hands-on, minds-on opportunity, and so we want to draw on their wonders and their needs to knows, and then we create those experiences. And it might through be through field work, like Aaron said, or an expert. We bring somebody in who brings artifacts that we can actually touch and investigate and ask new questions and like, oh, that's how that works. And that really leads to more questions. And then sometimes we are in a read aloud. Or we are just like, let's just Google it and we just kind of need to know. We need to know right now because it seems to be what has to be answered. Absolutely. Or we're not going to get to the guitar store for two weeks. What can we investigate? What can we learn about here? Or we know plants. It's a perfect example. They take a little while to get going. So what other questions can we investigate, inquire about while something is kind of happening over here? Not necessarily parallel, but it's we need it to do its thing is what I usually say to teachers. Um, what other questions could we answer? 
And so to really make this happen, again, teachers ask, you know, like you said, how does it work? How does it happen? We have to take on the role of a facilitator. We really are still driving the lessons. We're just thinking about how to frame them based on the students' questions. So we have this structure of our day and we have some freedom within these structures to pull in those questions or to use the read aloud I'm going to use and tie it back to a meaningful question. Or when so-and-so wanted to know that, let's see if we can read this book to help us. And then really giving the students the opportunity to be that lead investigator. Using the discussions uh, that Aaron talked about, right? Our speaking and listening standards, the field work. How do we talk to someone else who is a, an expert in the field? And then bringing in experts, which actually became much easier during COVID, right? You can find a meteorologist in three different parts of the country and tell us about what is it like to forecast the weather where you are? Or the friend of a friend that we can crowdsource off of social media can now become an expert, literally the expert, not air quotes, and zoom in and give us 20 minutes of their time uh, because they believe in this as well and want to help the students. So we honor the student questions, initial questions, and then through that inquiry process and not saving it as the afterthought. Oh, what are you wondering? We do ask that, but in the context of an activity or an experiment, and we really take the time, and I'll close with that, to process. It's great to put celery in colored water and see what happens. And often that's a one-off activity, but we have to find the meaning and the purpose and why we're doing every lesson and then process it with the students. Is it answering a question? Is it generating new questions? Are we discovering something else? So that we can go back to this idea of research, air quotes, and give it a new twist. That we wanna search for information and insights. And then the way that we really prop it up with young children, inquiry, investigation, and experimentation. Yeah, I love that. And I appreciate you sharing that. I mean, I think just that that whole idea of of rethinking what it is when we say research, and it's not for a conclusion of a, a written paragraph, paper, whatever the age appropriate context of typically what an assignment would end up being when we say research. And then we wonder why kids, you know, throw up in their mouth a little bit by the time they get older and we say, Hey, we're going to do some research. And like, Oh, cause they just, they like, they already know the outcome. They know it's not something that's, that's always pleasurable. doesn't mean there's not a time and place for it. I'm not saying that, but I like how you frame that up of like allowing that to like, that drives their inquiry. And I think one of the hardest things that that I've noticed too with any age group is we know where we need to end up as the professional. That's why we are in the classroom. That's why we are hired to do the job that we've been asked to do. And I like how the book in there are times where, you know, it's 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 not tricking the kids, but also allowing them to feel as if like they are driving the learning. And I think a beauty of that, that thing that we have found from time to time again is they might start off with a question that they're really excited about. And it's maybe it's not very good, but the journey is for them to discover how to refine that with the new question and a new prompt and a new pathway versus us discarding right away going, you know what? Uh, that's not a very good question. Let's 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 try it again. Like, and I feel like we we can lose that spark early on. Going, hey, let's explore that. 
knowing that we can get to where we need to go. That's why we are good at what we do, I think, as, as educators. And I love that you brought in the idea of, of field work. And I love in the book, and I know we're running short on time, the difference between field trips and field work. And so I like that, that attentionality to that framing there. And the idea of experts. And they are more than willing, more than ever before. I think people are almost everybody knows how to use zoom now. Um, and people jump on all the time. It's not always the same as with the young kids getting that hands-on tangible artifacts, but there's ways that we can go about providing that. And I can't, my biggest aha this year was almost every single time we brought an expert in, we uncovered something that there is no way, even with the, the co-teaching and co-planning that we were doing as the educators with master's degrees and beyond, we would not have been able to find the answers that these experts were sharing that were exactly what the kids needed for that new spark or to clarify something that we thought was right. And I just come back to that going in this 30 minute window, having these experts come in from time and time again, completely just pushes the learning in whole new ways. And we get into like other things too, which, you know, like conversation design, where it's not just a sit and get, but how do we teach kids going back to Aaron, what you were talking about? How do we listen and how do we speak? And if we're going to bring an expert on, we are actually the experts. Like our, our job here with them is to, we are in charge. We need to get the information out of them, not sit here and hope that they give us something that we could use. And so then how do we frame that thinking? And I know that's, it's easier said than done. We're not perfect at that, but that's something that we've been really passionate about. I know in some of the projects that we've been trying to do with upper elementary anyways, is like, how do we make them the drivers of that? Like, we need you asking the questions. This is your time that they're so willingly willing to provide, but you need to go figure out how to get the best, you know, the best, best uh, juice squeeze, you know, out of these experts as we go through. And so, um, just su su such great stuff here. And so I know we're coming up here on our, on our time and, um, I feel like there's still so much to, to unpack, but as you guys have all shared, and I know you have lots of conversations, are there things that you want to make sure you, you, you're, you're able to share something that triggered as each one of you have, 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 shared your insights on on one of several misconceptions that obviously I know your, your book addresses many more and goes into much more depth on those, but anything that you want to make sure that you add to this or or to the group for the listeners to to really uh, highlight and capitalize on, on, on some of this work here? Uh, I think the one thing is just, um, you know, helping educators to see that they can do it early childhood educators, but not only them, but school leaders. And I think oftentimes school leaders, um, administrators, you know, even instructional coaches may not come from a background of working with young children um, or teaching young children. And so I think as an early childhood teacher myself for so many years, it is so valuable when a school leader really sees me and, you know, really says to me, like, I know this PD is, you know, you know, as a third through fifth grade teacher or really shows examples, you know, of, you know, older students, but, but you just go ahead and figure it out. And they don't do that. Like, I really want my school leader to be like, this is for you. I mean, you know, part of the genesis for the book and our workshops and our courses, all of that was that it's designed for early childhood educators or leaders who are, who are supporting early childhood teachers. And so we want people to know that um, you can do it. And like you said, early on, like, 
these misconceptions or assumptions are rooted in real experiences. They, they, they are real and valuable and we are not going to dismiss them. We're going to say, you're right. Kids are emergent readers and writers. What do we do with that in PBL? Um, how do we leverage what they're interested in? And like you're saying, the purpose behind learning. So I guess I just want to communicate that. Um, and I, I do have a question. I, we probably don't have time to address it. But when you said, you said, uh, you know, that you were sharing this with other educators, I really was curious, like what you saw as universal to educators of older children. And you can text me about it later. <laughs> but I really was curious about that. Yeah, I mean, I'll share it just briefly and we can have a, a deeper dive and I'll share things. But I think one of my biggest things that I've seen through this is I've dabbled my toe with second grade. So I have not done much of this work in pre-K, K or first grade. So that's a uh, an atmosphere, an environment I, I, I can't speak to. But I've dabbled this year in second grade and, I, and I'm reading through your material and I'm going... I've from from looking at it from a middle school, high school, upper all the the tools and the, the structures and the frameworks on how to create inquiry and how to create provocations and how to create high quality projects are like little five, six, four, five, six, seven year olds. It is who they are in their DNA. It is like we have all this all these things, and just it's it's just who they are. And I just keep coming back to this, like, how do we not take that from them that we then when the kids get older we have these same misconceptions but the kids have lost a little bit of this flair for who they were they ask a million questions and they play and they're curious and they don't care if things don't work and if this doesn't try it, they're going to try something else and they're going to just going to keep going from here to here to there and there and there and that's why parents are exhausted and there's not enough coffee in the day and like i just think about like and then we get to like middle school and sometimes we're just they're duds because we've like taken that from them um and so anyways i just i find this thing like how do we keep like who they that. are at their core throughout and my super big picture learning that where I want to push my own learning is then if I start to get this stuff going in these young grades and keeping that energy going what does it look like when we are already across the board in lots of places seeing really incredible things with older kids. And the goal isn't to do young, this working younger girls for, for better projects down the road. But my thing is, man, if we plant that seed and we just start nurturing it, boom, in preschool and kindergarten, first grade, and then they keep building like, holy cow, like the, the, the K-12 system could just be, oh, I just, I get, I get excited about it knowing where it could be because this to me feels like a, a, a section that's been, neglected and that's why i'm so excited about your work and your book is to bring a voice to that i don't think it's been intentional i don't think it's been intentional i think there's those misconceptions that it addresses and now we need to we need to rise up and and talk about that and 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 let that stuff continue to to build into the schools and because the kids can do it and you guys know that i mean that's that's what your passion is and so it's just been a really great i just uh, have really thoroughly enjoyed your work um, and, and getting to work with all of you. So that was my, my little bit, Thank my, you. my soapbox answer, but yeah. <laughs> well, we're running close here on time. I want to be respectful. Everyone knows by now in the show notes, we'll have links to everything, um, that you guys provide to the book, to your websites, to, uh, 
your social media. But I always like to say for those that are listening in their car and they're sitting at a red light, not a green light, and they want to quickly dive in and check something else now while they've been listening, where is a good place for them to explore knowing full well we'll have all the stuff in the show notes? Yeah, just go to earlychildhoodpbl.com, Early Childhood Project-Based Learning. If you're on Facebook, we've got a great Facebook group of over 5,000 international educators. Um, our book is, we talked about it, but yeah, earlychildhoodpbl.com, you've got everything. Awesome. This Thank has you. been a wonderful pleasure. I appreciate all the work you do. I'm excited that our paths have crossed. Um, in this time and place, I think it's even for my brain being ready for it. And so I think sometimes the uh, the stars do align. So I appreciate, and I know many other people do appreciate all of your work that all three of you are doing. And I uh, can't thank you enough for uh, carving out some time here to uh, speak with me today. Woke up at six o'clock in the morning, chilling with coffee mugs, me and coffee chugs, talking education all across the nation, pushing boundaries, thinking innovation. Chaos.